to start. On the current issues and the Constitution show, Professor Wilson will encourage you to stay informed and read the U.S. Constitution. The show is intended to shine a light on current issues that impact your daily life. Professor Wilson has twice received the American History Teacher of the Year Award in the state of West Virginia and is the recipient of many honors. He served in the armed forces and is currently a college professor. He is a true patriot who believes the understanding of the Constitution is key to our future and our future freedoms rest with informed youth. Please join us live where you can ask questions or listen on your time. Just follow the show feed to receive the latest shows delivered right to you. Don't miss any of these informative episodes. Are you ready? Take out a copy of the U.S. Constitution, a notepad, and let's get ready to learn. Welcome to all of you joining us today. I am the moderator of Current Issues in the Constitution, Felice Gerwitz here, and with me on the line is Professor Wilson. And uh, Woody, you are going to get started today um, talking about uh, some current events. Is that correct? That's correct. All right. Well, I'll let you add it, and then I'll be back in just a little bit. Thank you, Felice. Hello, everyone. It's wonderful to be with you, um, as usual. Uh, just a few um, uh, things about some things that have happened since the last class, um, things that I've run across, and some of things you are probably aware of as well. I'm going to try very hard not to expound on it uh, to keep my comments limited so that we can get into uh, today's uh, big issue topic, uh, the United Nations Agenda 21 and Sustainable Development. And SMART reform, uh, that's a very long title. We typically call it um, Agenda 21. But first let me share with you uh, something I came across that I really found amusing. And when I thought about it, um, I was a little angry, I think. Uh, Obama was speaking to um, one an organization called the Organization for Action, the OFA. This is his uh, campaign. He keep, He still has... The first president, I think, that ever did it. He still has his campaign organization intact. So they had a, a meeting, a conference here in Washington, D.C., of his donors and volunteers, people that go out into the streets. These guys have quite a network all across America, especially in the big urban areas. But uh, he was um, it was basically a call to action. He was motivating them, getting them all fired up. And uh, in addition to it, he uh, uh, made some... Uh, critical comments about Republicans, rallying support for the months ahead as we head for the election, thank them for the uh, for their support of the Affordable Care Act because they all went out and they're still out there pushing it, trying to get people to sign up and all those kinds of things. Um, and again, this is the first presidency I have ever seen do this. Um, normally a president uh, represents all of the people and here I am expounding again. I'm going to stop with that right there. But the thing that really amused me, at some point in the speech, and he was talking about the Affordable Care Act, he said to them, the work you're doing is God's work. And I laughed out loud. Uh, this is the guy that canceled National Prayer Day and attended in the same year a Muslim prayer day. 
this is the man that represents the atheist network that's a part of that whole liberal agenda and Agenda 21. And here he is uh, using God's name. And then I got a little angry as I thought, this guy is taking the Lord's name in vain and using it for nefarious purposes, for his own political selfish ambitions. And uh, that's taking the Lord's name in vain. So the work you're doing is God's work. So even though purport, they purport to atheism, uh, sometimes they slip into it. At Harvard University, an assault on academic freedom by the student newspaper, and ed a student editor uh, in the Harvard Crimson, Crimson, she wrote an editorial uh, criticizing academic freedom. Find out that there are three conservative professors at Harvard, and they're all very vocal, and she and they would like to silence them. So this editorial is the beginning. Uh, have them fired, uh, at least uh, scare them, intimidate them, silence them. Now, the fascists did that in Germany and Italy. Nazis did that in Germany. Communists do it. And liberal Americans do that. They try to silence their opposition, smear campaigns, name-calling, demonizing against people that disagree with them. Now, some examples you've probably seen um, in your experience with current events, let me give you just a few that they use, and they spread one media organ will use it, and then several other will pick up on it. For a couple of weeks, we hear all of this uh, this criticism, demonization, smear campaign um, against people that could be in opposition to them. If you criticize or, or disagree with a black leader, a black person, Obama or anybody else, then you're a racist. A few years ago in 2009, when the Tea Party was emerging, uh, the media decided that the Tea Party was racist. And it spread throughout, and for three or four days they were screaming racism, Tea Party, a bunch of racists. Uh, they hate black people, they hate minorities. And then somebody asked them, what are some examples of their racism? And the media kind of went silent. They couldn't find anything. It was just a knee-jerk reaction. Uh, because they did, they were campaigning against Obama, who was half black, therefore they were racist. It's that simple. This is happening in our country, and, and it's it's just utter, utterly unbelievable. Secondly, if you criticize or disagree with um, illegal immigration, if you call for stronger border uh, enforcement and that sort of thing, you hate Hispanics. You're anti-Hispanic. Even though uh, stronger border enforcement, we're just asking the federal government to enforce the law as it already exists. So if we ask for the law to be enforced, we're anti-Hispanic. If we oppose same-sex marriage, we're homophobes. If we advocate reform for welfare, fix welfare, uh, welfare problems, that means we hate poor people and we're greedy and we're selfish. And this just spreads all across the land. Social justice. This is one of the big concepts in Agenda 21 that the United Nations is pushing, as are several Americans, including the President of the United States. Social justice means that everybody should be about the same. It's very Marxian. It's very communist. It's very socialist. Uh, take the money away from the wealthy. Uh, give it to the poor people. Everybody should have about the same amount of money. 
So if you criticize social justice or Agenda 21, which we'll get into later, then you're greedy and self-serving. And that's basically their argument. Because they don't have an argument, they have to demonize and do this smear stuff because they really don't have an argument that works in America. Oh, regardless of how loudly they speak, how shrill their voices, remember that Americans are largely conservative and Americans largely love the Constitution and intend to stick by it. Problem is they're not paying much attention. Okay, moving on. At Modesta Junior College in San Diego, a college student last year was passing out constitutions on Constitution Day and he was uh, going to start a Constitution Club. Well, he was uh, accosted by uh, campus police and taken into an office where he was read the Riot Act and told that he couldn't do that. Um, this, is, this is basically, once again, just like the smear campaigns and the Harvard assault on academic freedom, this is an attempt to squash freedom of speech, great First Amendment liberty of the American people. So anyway, he gets a lawyer and sues him, and um, didn't take long at all, five months, Modesta College settled with him and gave him $50,000 and agreed at his insistence that they would revise its speech code. So Harvard, Modesta, I want you to know all across the land in America, colleges and universities are very liberal. They're definitely in the liberal Agenda 21 camp, and they try to squash any opposition at all with these kinds of tactics because, again, they don't have an argument. Two weeks ago, and didn't get to talk about this last week, the Supreme Court uh, heard the case on um, EPA's requirement of the carbon tax and the emissions permits that we talked about, I think, two or three sessions ago. So the Supreme Court has heard this case, and the question is, uh, can the EPA uh, limit power and factory emissions of gases punitively that they blame for what they say is global warming. So court watchers uh, put out their opinions. These are uh, old scholars, former judges, and so on that sit on the case and listen to the questions. Now, as you probably, as you learned last year, and you probably remember, a Supreme Court session, a lawyer gets up and starts, and uh, usually doesn't talk for more than 60 seconds, and the justices start interrupting with questions. Now, the justices, the nine justices, have already read their briefs. They know exactly what's in it. They know what the lawyers are going to say, and they have questions that they want the lawyers to talk about. It's the lawyer's job to do the research and inform the justices. Normally, I think the justices probably already know what the answers are, uh, but they re really want to grill the lawyers on both sides to get all of the facts, details, precedents, and so on out there for everybody to see and consider. So, according to court watchers who listen to these questions, the court's four liberal justices seemed okay with the EPA regulation program, and this applies to companies that want to expand facilities or build new ones that would, or get this, might increase overall pollution. So we're going to tax them, and we're going to uh, charge them big money for emissions permits because they might increase overall pollution. Now keep in mind, please, that 40% of America's electrical power 
comes from coal-fired plants. That applies to me. I happen to know that my the power plant that supplies me electricity is coal-fired. Maybe yours is too. So if the EPA gets away uh, with establishing the carbon tax and emissions permits, that means that my electricity rates are going to skyrocket. They're going to go up very sharply. And that means that all the businesses, all of the restaurants and the retail outlets and transportation services that rely on electricity are going to increase their rates too. This, is going to, this would start a, basically a tsunami of inflation that's going to affect us all, and they're doing it in a time when the economy is pathetic. This is bad policy, bad policy. And this administration just doesn't seem to get it. On the other side of the um, um, aisle, uh, court watchers say that conservative justices indicated they're very skeptical of the EPA's authority. With Justice Anthony Kennedy, as usual, the probable decisive vote. So probably four conservatives are going to vote that the EPA does not have this authority. If, if there is going to be any policy that punishes, penalizes, taxes, requires fines or fees of any American or any American business, then it's going to have to be an act of Congress. It always has been. Government bureaucracies, government agencies created by Congress. EPA was created when Richard Nixon was president. It was his idea. Then they are responsible to Congress, and if they want to basically change the landscape in their area of responsibility, that's going to have to come out of Congress. So four conservatives will vote for that, and we'll see what swing voter Anthony Kennedy probably uh, probably will do. He will probably have the decisive vote, and he is a moderate conservative. So we have yet another attempt. First, we've seen Obama's executive orders, and now we have an attempt uh, by the Obama administration to shift legislative power from Congress to an executive branch agency. Never really been done before. In foreign affairs, very quickly, I know that you're following current events and you know what's going on in the Ukraine. It's a very ugly situation. Uh, probably not as tense as the media is making it out to be. Let me read you uh, two brief paragraphs from a weekly standard conservative magazine that I get article regarding foreign affairs. Here we go. Kiev that's the capital of Ukraine. Kiev is ablaze. Syria is a killing field. The Ira Iranian mullahs are not giving up their nuclear weapons capability. And other regimes, regimes in the Middle East are preparing to acquire their own. Al-Qaeda is making gains again, and it's probably stronger than ever. China and Russia throw their weight around while our allies shudder and squabble. Why is this happening? Because the United States is in retreat. What is the Obama administration's response to these events? Further retreat. We've talked about that before. We were once a world leader, and we made a difference in the world. We really did. Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel has announced a, a proposed Pentagon budget 
that will shrink the United States Army to its smallest number since 1940. Folks, that's between, that is before World War II. That's before Pearl Harbor. This was in a day when we had almost no military system. His proposal would also eliminate an entire class of Air Force attack jets. So cut the military, expand the entitlements. That's the direction that this administration is going, going in. I think it was two classes ago we talked about unions and how they behave. Um, I have a report from uh, Philadelphia. Ten Philadelphia union members have been indicted in a federal court for allegedly using illegal means of coercion, including the torching of a Quaker meeting house, to force local contractors to use organized labor. Okay, so this federal indictment announced Tuesday accuses members of Iron Workers Local 401 of several crimes, including racketeering, violence, and arson. These are typical union tactics. Other alleged crimes include incidents in which union members allegedly threatened or actually assaulted contractors and damaged or destroyed construction equipment and job sites. And like I said, nothing new. They've been doing this since the late 19th century. It is a tactic that they use, um, and we're seeing a, an increasing union presence in Texas. Now, Texas is a very conservative state, not union-friendly, but unions are going in anyway. And what they do, and the law requires, that they can go into any business or company or corporation and hold an election. And that's just why they want to get rid of the secret ballot, so they can use their violence to intimidate workers to vote for the union. Now, unions make money by, you know, while people, manufacturers make money by producing things and selling them in the market, unions make money through violence, intimidation, and expanding their membership. When you belong to a union, you pay a pretty hefty dues that comes directly out of your paycheck. So the more, the bigger the union is, the more money the union has uh, to pay their top leaders and to do strikes and um, take care of families during the strikes. And also, they contributed millions of dollars uh, to President Barack Obama in his campaign. So we have, you know, as, as a part of that whole liberal agenda, the, we have um, unions working very actively as well. Another amusing little thing, uh, last thing, and then we'll take a break. Um, Bill Clinton, the Clinton Papers, which are held secret in a presidential and public library in Butler Center in Arkansas, have been held secret. Clinton Foundation blocked the release of the Clinton, Clinton Papers. That would be Bill and Hillary because she worked in his government. Now, there are all the other governors whose papers are there, they're, they don't block their papers. Their papers are open to the public. But the Clinton Foundation recently blocked the release of any papers. And the speculation is that Hillary has something to hide and she wants to run for president and um, she would rather that those kinds of things, the whitewater thing, look that up, whitewater scandal, uh, look that up. And those these are things that she may be wanting to keep. But that's speculation. We can't be sure. But why else would the Clinton Foundation block the release of public information that other governors are just very happy to release to the public? So let's take a break here.
What happens when you learn about the fabulous facts of American history, add notable presidential events, and a good measure of the U.S. Constitution? Well, you get a history class that is informative and has no rival. See 64 hours of video taught by AP-level instructor and award-winning professor of American history, Robert Woodrow Wilson, were recorded with a live audience. Now available on demand on your time, you can view this class in the comfort of your own home. This video course comes with instruction, handouts, and the tools you need for a high school level course that can be enjoyed by students of all ages. Especially designed for the homeschool audience and published and produced by Media Angels, a company you have learned to trust with the goal of excellence in education. Need more information? Sure. Go to MediaAngels.com or go to AmericanHistoryKidsClass.com and order your set today. Your kids will thank you. Hi and welcome back. My name is Felice Gerwitz and I'm the moderator of Current Issues in the Constitution. And uh, before we went on break, uh, Woody went through some uh, current events. And we have a question from the audience. Uh, Woody, so I'd like to ask you that at this time. Okay. All right. Uh, the question is, how can Homeland Security override the Supreme Court um, as and what happened with the Romanke family? And that is a family that was um, came to the U.S. for asylum from Germany. They were harassed for homeschooling their children, and uh, the Supreme Court uh, refused to um, hear that case. Uh, so um, the question, she says, I know it was an answer to prayer, but I thought the Supreme Court was the final say. So um, are you aware of that case, Woody? You know, uh, very vaguely, I read about that case uh, uh, quite some time ago. And I do okay. remember um, that I do remember that uh, the Supreme Court, these, these people were sent back to Germany, weren't they? They were not. Um, they were not. They were being no. They were being defended um, by the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. Although you know they they were at the at this point um, I believe not members, but they came to the U.S. for asylum. They wanted to homeschool right. their children, and there was a lot of like, they were told that they their children would be taken away from them, and uh, the U.S. government was not. Um, helping and at some point um there were a lot of petitions i believe the white house even uh, allowed a petition i guess you can go and and put up petitions for people to sign but there was such an outcry they said um the petition signing site after the U u.s supreme court refused to hear the case um hit one million visitors um you know in that one day so that right. When, when that happens, it almost takes the site down if they're not prepared. So, um, you know, so that was the question: is how can the Homeland Security override the Supreme Court? Okay, well, the um, Homeland Security didn't really override the Supreme Court. The reason, if the Supreme Court had taken the case and made a decision, and right. then Homeland Security ignored it and, uh, let's say, deported them back to Germany or something, that would be overriding. Uh, the Supreme Court gets re uh, a few thousand requests every year uh, from appeals courts, and most of them they do not accept. Uh, they take a look at the information. Uh, remember we talked about Sotomayor and the Little Sisters case, how she reviewed 
the information and decided that this was a, an issue that the Supreme Court uh, should take up, usually a constitutional issue. Uh, whereas immigration probably wouldn't fall under that, the rights of immigrants. That falls more under the law. And normally, um, in most of the cases that are appealed to the Supreme Court or petitioned to the court, the court will issue a statement called stare decisis, that is, let the decision stand. Let the decision that was made in the lower court, whether it was a district or an appeals court, let that decision stand. Um, we have no interest in this case. So I would say that that was probably the case. I'm not, I'm not one, you know, the, the Supreme Court, um, I hold them in great esteem um, and respect. I don't like the politicization of the court. But as I look at the Obama administration, as I look at Congress, there's one, one branch of government to me that seems to be stable in doing its job. Now, why? You could probably do online research, and I think I will also, and find out why the Supreme Court, where was a decision made, what lower court, why did the Supreme Court decide it was not uh, the kind of constitutional issue that they want to take a look at and set precedence on. Uh, there is some reason for that, and you could probably find that with online research. And what was the name of that family again? I'll spell it for you because I probably said it wrong, and hopefully, yeah, it's R-O-M-E-I-K-E. I believe that's how you spell it. Rumiki. Okay. Yeah, I'll take a look at that. Maybe in the next class we'll talk about it. Okay, great. Good question. Great. That was a really good question. And there are um, the best questions. The best questions are the ones that I cannot answer. So. <laughs> <laughs> Called the stump great... teacher. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, funny. Okay, so so we are going to head over uh, to Agenda 21, and I'll keep my eye out. And if anyone has any questions, I'll jump in and I will ask you. All right. Okay. Agenda 21: Sustainable Development and Smart Growth, or Smart Reform. Uh, it goes by various titles. We just call it Agenda 21. It is a. Um, it has been around since the early 1970s. It is an action plan coming from the United Nations, and it basically the central thesis of the tip of the spear of Agenda 21 is global warming. So let's get that out of the way. First of all, uh, this this theory of global warming that the globe is warming that. Uh, Remember <laughs> Al Gore, former vice president that lost the election to George Bush in 2000, said five years ago that in five years the polar ice cap will have melted and um, there will be seawater in the streets of Miami and Fort Myers, Florida and all the other coastal towns. Well, five years later, <coughs> there is, according to climatology geologists, more ice in the North Pole than there was five years ago. So he was exactly wrong, and nobody on that side of the question seems to care. It is very clear to me, after a great deal of reading and research, and I happen to have a friend, he's uh, 88 years old, that has spent the last 30 years, he's a very bright man, a former engineer, he's spent the last 30 years studying global warming. We've had a lot of conversations. He sent me a lot of material to read, and it is very clear to me that this global warming theory um, is a hoax. 
And if the United Nations is going to succeed with promoting and spreading their Agenda 21 throughout the world, then they have to prove that or at least convince people that global warming, because human beings are emitting too much CO2 in the atmosphere, is a serious threat to mankind. And if, according to what I read, uh, they are just wrong. The globe warms, the globe cools. It warms, it cools in regular cycles. In fact, I saw a chart of a global warming period clear back in the Middle Ages when it was a lot warmer, it was a lot hotter back then than it is now in America. And there weren't any coal-fired power plants putting CO2 in the atmosphere at that time. And I've recently read an article on uh, two of the leading spokesmen of the global warming scientific community, Drs. Michael Mann and Andrew Weaver. Now, they were uh, roundly criticized, and uh, their work was questioned. Their integrity was questioned by a Canadian reporter from Toronto. So they both sued him at different times, and they lost when the court demanded that they that – they furnish proof that their theory is correct, and both of them refused to make their research public. So the reporter, once the case was dismissed for lack of evidence, the reporter sued both of them. He sued them for $10 million. And again, they were called upon by the courts, both Dr. Mann and Dr. Weaver, to prove their position, to release their information, to show the court the research, and they refused to do it. And so they lost. They lost the case, their cases. And they have pretty much been silenced. Um, the KE German Research Institute is uh, finding from several scientists uh, similar um, information, and they're, they're taking a look. They find out that most of the charts and graphs these global warming alarmists are putting out there, they start after that Middle Age period that I told you about, and they stop in 1990, and there was a warming period then. And they stop in 1990 because there is no global warming from 1990 to 2014. Uh, the charts show, show the temperatures pretty much stable, well below the Middle Age levels. So they're using information like that. And I have read over the past on two different occasions that some of these scientific um, centers for global warming, um, whistleblowers have made their emails public, and we find out that scientists are emailing each other back and forth and deciding what data to use that they have gathered and what data not to use. Um, so they're actually throwing out facts, factual statistics, factual data that would disagree with the theory of global warming. You know what really bothers me? Obama said in the State of the Union message that global warming is now a settled, silence, uh, settled science. It is not a settled science, not at all. There is more information that shows the globe is not warming up because of CO2 emissions than there is saying that it does. Another contributor to the, 
In fact, we're seeing more and more of this. You know, the uh, global warming people, you know, the liberal community, how they attack and demonize, and, and scientists that disagree, like uh, Richard Linzer of MIT, one of the top climatologists in the nation, who disputed global warming theory. He was blackballed. I told you about him. Um, not allowed to publish in scientific journals and so on. And his name was basically Mud. Um, so that it, it seems like more and more people who are in the know and that they know that global global warming is a hoax. More and more people are coming out in opposition to it. And one that I saw just recently, just a few days ago, Patrick Moore was his name. And in the 1960s, he was a co-founder of Greenpeace, one of the leading environmental organizations. And he says quite simply, there is no scientific evidence to support global warming. Let me say that again. There is no scientific evidence to support global warming. Now, this is a biological scientist, co-founder of Greenpeace, and Obama, who is a former community organizer, says that global warming is settled science. Patrick Moore says, and let me say it again, no scientific evidence to support global warming. Who do you believe? Well, okay, so who and why? Who is pushing global warming? Uh, Moore went on to talk about a very powerful convergence of interest pushing global warming theory. And the thing that really bothers me is they don't care whether it's truth or not. It doesn't matter if it's true or false to them. If they can convince most of the people in the world that the globe is warming up and we're all in big trouble in the future if we don't do something about it, if they can convince people of that, then you're going to see a massive transfer of wealth from industrialized, developed nations to third world nations. Because those people don't have, they say, we don't have the skills, we don't have the knowledge, we don't have the technology to combat global warming, to protect our cities. And those kinds of things. So part of the United Nations agenda, and please keep in mind that there are, I think, 196 countries in the United Nations, and two-thirds of those are third world countries, very poor countries, backward and undeveloped, and they want our money. Very much, um, very much uh, it's called social justice, and it's very much what uh, President Obama advocates for America. We've heard it uh, pass his lips many times. Uh, we're going to need to tax the rich to take care of the poor. And so the United Nations Agenda 21 seeks to do this on a global scale. Take the money from the wealthy countries and shift it to the third world countries. This is the, like I said, the tip of the spear of Agenda 21 is convincing the world that global warming is something that governments need to do, deal with so people uh, trust us, uh, give us the power, give us the influence. And keep in mind, the United Nations is a government. It is a global government. It has law. It has policy. It has a very, very large staff. It has reach throughout the world. And uh, right now I would say that they're probably winning. But anyway, getting back to more, this powerful, powerful convergence of interests that he talked about, here they are, politicians, People like the Obama administration, members of Congress, 
prime ministers, parliaments throughout the world, politicians, when they say we're saving the world, to them it's power. Environmentalists who want to raise money and gain control over all energy policy, like the American EPA, you'll find them in every country. To environmentalists, it's money and power. The media, for sensationalism, they sensationalize stories and uh, get readers or viewers, and as a result, they charge more for advertising and they make money. So they sensationalize this stuff, like they're doing the Ukraine right now. There's nothing really terrible going on in the Ukraine, but if you're following the news, um, maybe you're led to believe that there is a serious problem. So for the media, it's money. Colleges and universities like Harvard and Modesta, who want millions of dollars in federal grants, taxpayer money. So they are in support. To the colleges and universities, it's money. The United Nations and Agenda 21, to them, it's money and it's power. So the powerful convergence, politicians, environmentalists, media, colleges and universities, and when I say politicians, I mean global, and the United Nations and Agenda 21. Bring all these people together. You've got a lot of people with a lot of money and a lot of resources, a lot of reach, and that's why they're winning, even though, you know, you know, like it says in the Bible, you don't build a house on sand, and their sand is global warming theory and CO2 emissions. And that needs to collapse. Um, so we need to hear more from people like um, that Toronto journalist, KE German Research Institute, uh, people like Patrick Moore and Richard Lenzen of MIT. We need to hear more from them. I was a little, I thought, oh, my goodness. I'm, I get this. My wife and I go to the symphony down in Charleston, West Virginia. It's about an hour and a half away. We go every now and then. And uh, so we're members. And I, got a, I get these emails from the Clay Center, which hosts the symphony, and other programs, and, and it offers uh, me the opportunity to come down and hear a lecture on climate change, the evidence, people, and our options, the evidence, people, how people are going to be affected, what our options are, what we can do. So these two professors, I looked them up, they're both very much a part of the liberal agenda, are coming to the Clay Center, and they're people just like them going to thousands of places all across America to push and promote climate change, global warming, same thing. And it says, join us for a fascinating evening as Dr. Ellen Mosley Thompson and Dr. Lonnie G. Thompson discuss the controversial topic of climate change. Well, at least they admit that it is uh, controversial. Do you think I will go? Definitely not. I can look them up online and read what they've got to say, and I'm not interested so much in what they have to say because I've been reading it for 30 years. I'm looking for the evidence that says that they are wrong. Let's talk about the United Nations for a minute before we, um, before we get into the specifics and the details of Agenda 21. Now, first of all, uh, the United Nations is an organization that we essentially created. 
In fact, uh, uh, the main points uh, of the United Nations are based on the failure of the League of Nations, Woodrow Wilson's brainchild, back in 1919. And one of the things that the League of Nations did, that treaty did, was gave up the American people's sovereignty to a foreign body, and so it was defeated. It was offered as a treaty to the Senate, and the Senate defeated it. Okay, so uh, Roosevelt and his people, and Winston Churchill and his people, studied the League of Nations, and they came up with a plan to create a new world body that would solve problems, and who would disagree with that? Let's go to the United Nations and talk it out and, and settle this problem instead of going to war and murdering tens of thousands of people. I mean, who would disagree with that? Uh, so Roosevelt and Churchill met several times um, during the war. Churchill would sail over on a well-guarded battleship to the uh, but, uh, waters uh, off the coast of Nova Scotia where he would meet Roosevelt and his battleship. And they would spend a week talking one-on-one -on -one with no witnesses, nothing written down, nothing taped. I would love to know what they said. But they came up with a plan for the United Nations. And um, after the war, it was basically put into place. This time they created a system whereby American so and British sovereignty would not be threatened or usurped by the United Nations, even though that's exactly what's happening with Agenda 21, but in a very sly, uh, round-the-corner way, and we'll talk about that probably in the next class. Um, so they created a body with a general assembly where all the countries in the world are represented, all 196 of them, two-thirds of them third world who want our money, and they created a security council of five members. They were the big five, um, Great Britain, United States, France, Russia, and China. And it gave each one of those veto power. So if we make a proposal that we stop the genocide in Serbia, which we did, and uh, we can persuade China to vote yes, along with Britain, France, and the United States, Russia vetoes it, then boom, it's dead. Russia has veto power. And if the Security Council does something that threatens our sovereignty, we can veto it. So the result is that the United Nations um, over the years has become, in respect to promoting peace, human rights, those kinds of things, uh, the United Nations has become just about useless. But let's take a look at how liberals and um, conservatives differ on this. Liberals say this, the United Nations promotes peace and human rights. Conservatives would say the United Nations has re repeatedly failed in its essential mission to promote world peace and human rights, and it has, largely because of that veto power. Liberals say the United States has a moral and a legal obligation to support the United Nations. I feel like I personally have a moral and legal obligation to support the Constitution and the Church and great documents like the Declaration of Independence and the Gettysburg Address. I don't feel any moral, legal loyalty of any type to the United Nations. So I guess I must not be very liberal. Liberals go on to say, the United States should not act as a sovereign nation but as one member of a world community. So we're nothing special. We're just one of 196, and we need to start acting like that. 
quit throwing our weight around, quit spreading democracy and freedom and all of those great things that make America one of the most sought-after places to live in the world. Liberals say the United States should submit its national interests, its sovereignty to the greater good of the global community, as defined by the United Nations, of course. So this is part of the liberal agenda. It's part of the Agenda 21, is leading the United States to a submission to the almighty United Nations. Liberals go on to say the United States should defer to the United Nations in military and peacekeeping matters. We should not go it alone. We should not, we should not have a war on terror. We shouldn't be fighting terrorists. We should let the United Nations do that. The United Nations Charter gives the United Nations Security Council the power and responsibility to take collective action to maintain international peace and security, they say. Now we know that it doesn't because of that veto. And they finish up by saying United States troops should submit to United Nations command. Conservatives, the wars, genocide, human rights abuses take abuses taking place in many human rights council member states right now. And the United Nations failure to stop them prove this point. History shows that the United States, not the United Nations, is a global force for good, spreading freedom, prosperity, tolerance, peace, human rights, women's rights, trying to stop AIDS in Africa. It's not the United Nations that has done that. It's the United States. The United Nations will not do that. Their money will go into Agenda 21. Now, this, just reading this um, earlier this morning um, reminded me of a quote I came across many, many years ago, back in the 1990s, by a liberal uh, alternative radio founder, David Barsamian. And he wrote on June 30th, 2003, I guess it was, he writes this, and this really stuck with me. The history of American imperialism is hardly one of unadorned good doing. There have been plenty of shameful episodes, such as slavery and the mistreatment of the Indians. But on the whole, American imperialism has been the greatest force for good in the world during the past century. It has defeated the monstrous evils of communism and Nazism and fascism and lesser evils such as the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, Serb Serbian ethnic cleansing. Along the way, it has helped spread democratic institutions to many countries as diverse as South Korea and Panama. It was the United States that did these things. It was not the United Nations. Conservatives also say that the United States should never subvert its national interests to those of the United Nations. It's the same thing that congressman said in the Senate back in 1919, we are not going to give up our sovereignty, our national interests, to United Nations control. The United Nations is controlled by third world countries. Keep that in mind. The United States conservatives say should never place troops, never place troops under UN control. And the United States military should always wear the United States military uniform, not that of UN peacekeepers. And among the conservative community, opinions vary on whether the United States should withdraw from the United Nations. 
Now, when the United States was first forming in the late 1940s, the Rockefeller Foundation provided the land. American taxpayer money built the building, which is still there today. Today, we pay, we pay about 82% of the costs of the United Nations. If we pulled out of the United Nations, the United Nations would collapse. Once when I was teaching, uh, I had an insight, and I thought, well, why don't we uh, pull out of the United Nations? I've never had a fondness for this organization. I think I did when I was a boy, when I was a college student, but once I came to understand its failure and its lack of interest, I mean, there are a majority of the countries that are in the United Nations that that condemn Israel for anything bad that happens in the Middle East and blames Israel. And this is the United Nations. Israel is the only democracy in, in the whole Middle East, and it's our strongest ally in the Middle East. So you know, how can you support an organization like that? But anyway, it hit me one day. I was uh, working with a, a team. And I said out loud, what if we pulled out of the United Nations and started a new international body? And we can call it the United Nations of Democratic Countries or something like that. So democracies. So Russia could stay out and China could stay out and many of the Middle Eastern countries could stay out and we would basically... Uh, dominate the wealth and the resources of the world, the democratic nations combined as a world peacekeeping body. Under American leadership, of course, but in concert and collegiality with, with other democratic nations of the world. And because it would be so powerful and influential, other countries in the world that are not allowed membership because they're not democracies would be interested in knocking on the door. All they have to do is let us help them with democratic reform, setting up elections, uh, making sure the ele uh, elections are fair and free, and, and um, all of the other kinds of institutions that are necessary. We could help them over the years become democratic nations, and then they could apply for membership. It would be a good way to lead the rest of the world for democracy. I've told you guys before, in uh, in the year 1900, there were four countries on the planet that could be called democracies. And we were the greatest of those. Well, today there are 127 out of 196. So we've got a ways to go. Starting our own United Nations of democratic countries uh, would be a way of spreading democracy throughout the rest of the world. Think of all the people, all the men and women and boys and girls that could be free. And at the same time, think of the United Nations and Agenda 21. And next week, uh, we won't do any current events at all. We'll talk for an hour about Agenda 21, and you'll see that one of the things that Agenda 21 would ultimately do, if it were carried out to its fullest extent, would be to take away freedom, individualism, civil liberties. So let's wrap it up there for today. You know how liberals feel. You know how conservatives feel about the United Nations. And um, so this is a battle. And I, let me tell you this also. I've, I've just got to tell you. I um, 
for all of my life, I have been a devoted follower of current events. And until about two years ago, I had never heard of Agenda 21. And they have been at it for a very long time. Folks, it is not in the news. It is being kept out of the news. I would would like to say it's below the radar. The media is not interested because they can't sensationalize anything, but I'm not saying that. I am saying that it is being kept out of the news on purpose because it's being implemented right now. It has been implemented in 173 countries, and it is right now, even as we speak, being implemented implemented in the United States. More than 600 American cities and towns have subscribed to Agenda 21. They're bypassing Congress. They're bypassing the federal government. They're going directly to local governments. They're doing it. And they're keeping it out of the news so that you and I don't know about it. We'll get into it in some depth in next week's class. Have a very good week. Do some research. So this is basically a part one, and um, we'll be picking it up next week. And so um, very interesting, Woody, and um, hopefully we'll have more questions because I don't see any here um, in the chat box. I see some of our regulars are listening by phone, so they're probably not at home. Okay, let Uh, let me just say Let me just say, just um, um, go to the Internet um, in the next six or seven days and spend some time reading. Uh, there, you know, this stuff is all over the Internet. The entire text, uh, I think about 300 pages of Agenda 21, is online. You can read it for yourself. You can see what they're doing. You can read articles about it, articles supporting it, articles opposing it, ICLEI. Write this down if you are able to, I-C-L-E-Y. Type in to your search engine, ICLEI, I-C-L-E-I, United States. And spend some time on that website. You will be um, alarmed at what you see. And we'll talk about it next week. Let me just check that really quick, Woody. You said um, I-C-L-E-I. Right. This is the implementation arm. These are the foot soldiers that are carrying it out. Okay. So let's just see what we find really quick. Yes. Um, There is a, I believe, an ICLEI, I-C-L-E-I dot org. Right. Uh, Okay. Uh, International Council for Local Environmental Initiatives. Stephen uh, has a uh, Wikipedia article. All right. Never heard of that before, so I did learn something new myself here. You know, and, you don't uh, hear you don't no, hear you these don't. things. They are not they're not in the media. I think that's mm. very interesting. There's silence. Well, they are they are now on the current issues in the Constitution radio right. show. <laughs> All right, they're exposed. So there we go. All right, Woody. Well, thank you very much for today's session, and we will see you next week. Thank you. Have a good week. You too. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of The Current Issues in the Constitution. 
If you'd like to join us live, visit our show page on ultimatehomeschoolradionetwork.com. And for more information about Professor Wilson's classes, visit AmericanHistoryKidsClass.com. See you next week.